Hello, story seekers. I'm Nico. I'm Ben. And you're listening to The Tiny Bookcase. Welcome to this write-like episode. As you know, in these episodes, we talk about famous and infamous writers whilst tackling prompts in their honour. Style, structure or tone, we intend to see what happens when we borrow from the greats. Our writer today was an American who started out as a journalist, wrote short stories, then novels. Truly, his style of omission and implication is famous wherever writers write. When interviewed on his boat after winning the Nobel Prize for Literature, he said... The hardest thing is to make something really true, and sometimes truer than true. It could only be Ernest Hemingway. This one's been coming for a while. Um, like I, I've been really enjoying the right likes. But yeah. I think we had, I think we had to build up to this one a bit because the idea of trying to write like someone who is such a huge figure. Yeah. Like Ernest Hemingway. I know we've written, you know, Dickens, for example, the last one that we just did, but. Th- Hemingway, there's something like complicated about his technical style. He ha- he has his own mythos as well around him about like his you know his own personal bravery and his exploits. Yeah. Uh. So it's it sort of it's it's like half writing like a a very famous author and half writing like an important person from history. Goddamn I mean, American hero. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um. And it, yeah. I, I was I was pretty excited but trepidatious I would say coming into it's, this one. It's just on that line, isn't it? You know, we we've got a huge list of authors that we pull mm-hmm. from, and then every so often we we hit a name and we go, I don't, I don't really want to do Tolkien. I f- I feel like I couldn't do it justice in this number of words or you know whatever excuse we come up with to say I just don't want to do that one. Mm. <laughs> and I think Hemingway is just on that line, isn't it? Of I think so. Okay. No, yeah, okay, I, I can do that, which uh, I'm sure we'll talk about later. But maybe I was wrong. But <laughs> <laughs> perhaps, yeah. I I will say it was it was pretty hard. Um, it the it's so difficult. Not like even the quote that we just said. You know, uh, the hardest thing is to make something really true and sometimes truer than true. That is like a gnat's hair from being utter bollocks. It like t- just sounding like nonsensical dribble, but it's just on that side of being. No, oh, actually, just on that side because he was on a boat holding his Nobel Prize for literature. Well, maybe, but then like if, is sort of king in that in that regard, isn't it? Like, I guess so. Because if I saw that, if an Instagram model, you know, just some dude with beautiful cheekbones <laughs> wearing a pair of Ray Bans, was like, the hardest thing is to make something really true, and sometimes truer than true i'd be like what a wanker <laughs> yeah absolutely and it is it is pretty wanky but as you say he's he is holding his nobel prize so yeah and i think actually like it's not just because he's got the prize and because he's on a boat and but it's he's earned the right to say the words as well rather than just it matching yeah. what the words are like it, that's quite a complicated thing isn't it i think so I, I actually didn't read The Old Man and the Sea for ages, which is, that's the one that he, he wrote right before getting the the prize. The yes. Big, you know, Nobel Prize. Uh, and I, I liked it a lot, but it's it's definitely not my favourite Hemingway novel. And it's, it's sort of like when someone wins an Oscar, isn't it? You sort of like, did they really win it for that movie or did they win it for... For the one they did last year, but they had to give it to this other one. And, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, like you know, like Leonardo DiCaprio finally winning an Oscar. You know, it was sort of like maybe that kind of vibe. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, the Old Man in the Sea is is extremely good. Like I'm not I'm not knocking the Old Man in the Sea. It's a it's a good it's a good novel. Two out of ten. Shit. Well, I guess it's more of a novella, really, isn't it? It's it's quite <laughs> short. But yeah, it's two out of ten. Shit. Old Man and no. the shit more like hey hey. So I'm fairly sure. <laughs> Uh, from from our conversations earlier, that um, I think I've uh, experienced a bit more Hemingway than you have. Have you read it? I know you've read some of his short stories. Have you read any of the novels? Not one. Not one. Okay. It's, think... it's one of those things where it's almost become like a guilt thing now. Where oh, really? Uh, because I've I've never read it and I don't really know where to start. But it's hard to say to maybe this can be my leaping off point. Cause it's really hard to say to someone. Hey, where do, where do I start with Hemingway without them going, you've never read any Hemingway? So it's... 
I, I always feel like, cause I, I think people feel that way about, uh, you know, uh, movies that they haven't seen or, yes. as you say, books they haven't read or, I don't know, plays they haven't watched, it, whatever it is. But I don't think that's got much place after a certain point in life. You know, there's if, if you're not having your, like, your finger on the pulse of a, like a youth movement when you're in your teens yeah. and you're a, you know, a 30-something-year-old man who loves reading and stuff, you can just start wherever you want. Like you can you can do whatever you want, and if you haven't read something, that's fine. Do you know what I mean? Like it's 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 okay to be at that stage. Yeah. And in fact, I would I would always say I'm continually jealous of people that get to experience stuff for the first time. So you know when you put Game of Thrones and stuff in front of someone, or when you put a Tarantino movie in front of someone, and they've never seen it or read it before, that's exciting. That's an exciting yeah. moment. So for me, I would say that my favourite Hemingway novel is For Whom the Bell Tolls, which is about the Spanish Civil War in the late 30s. Okay. Uh, I, and it, it draws heavily on his personal experiences of being a, uh, a journalist in that in that area. Uh, and it's just, it's an absolute doorstop, but it's, yeah. it's really good. And it, it just weaves together this beautiful tale. It's a, Basically, they're just there to do a bit of sabotage, like guerrilla warfare sabotage yeah but it's very complicated and extremely uh worthwhile like it's very uh i i found it a very fulfilling book to get my teeth into yeah but the first one that i read was the sun also rises which um is all about like uh bullfighting and stuff in spain oh, cool. and um and people having like taught interpersonal dramas in spanish bars around the bullfighting and stuff, you know, and people sleeping with each other's wives and all that kind of thing, and soldiers That's dealing great. with their injuries. Yeah, it's it's really fun. So that was the first one that I read, and it is a very good entry point. So I'd probably recommend The Sun Also Rises because I think people would often bounce off and the bell tolls. Yeah. Um, but if you've already know what to expect, then you can you can you can really build up a head of steam with it. It's an interesting thing I'm seeing in in a lot of the writers we're doing as well. A lot of American writers start as journalists. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, even even I've a lot of English do as well. Yeah, I the it's sort of perpetual, this isn't it? Like this idea that you get good at writing by continually writing, and who writes more than journalists? True. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I I found that with this podcast, you know, we've, we've we've basically been continually writing short stories for going on two years now. So why am I still shit, Ben? Uh, well, you're <laughs> but you're, you're not. You're, you're very good. I think it's all for the joke. Don't worry. Yeah. It's uh, so the I think that's why I think that it's yeah. just quite simply because they 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 get to hone their craft, and some people stay as journalists, which is fine, and other people find their passion elsewhere, which Hemingway definitely did. Um, but uh, I, as you could tell, I could probably waffle on about Hemingway for a while. So uh, buckle in, listeners. I should um, I should probably move us along. So the man himself said that courage is grace under fire. So imagine I'm pointing a gun at you. Oh. <laughs> the prompt is islands, and you're up first. Vamos, amigo. Islands. How long should it be until we get there? Asked the child. It was a youthful question, one that with time would fade as patience took its place. I, I don't know, replied the man. I'm tired of travelling. Then looked from the window. There was almost nothing to be seen, no view save the eddies and twirls of unforgiving cloud. Everything behind them was blue, and everything around them was white. I can't see anything. This was fair and true, and the man couldn't help but agree. He squinted as though he may peer through if he were to look hard enough. Together, they stared at nothing. I'm very bored. Then you must amuse yourself. The child thought on this. They had never had to be amusing for themselves nor anyone else. It had always fallen upon the adults to amuse them. Where were the circus clowns now? They would be useful. The child had seen clowns in a town square once, and not thought much of them at all then. But now they would be good. 
when compared to nothing. I did not know how to amuse myself, the child stated, airing the thought. And I do not know how to amuse you, said the man. I do not know you. That's true, said the child, and began to think about how they came to be sat beside the man. Do you know my parents? The man thought. I cannot say. I don't know you, so I don't know who your parents are. Perhaps I do know them. They were both quiet again, left with only the soft noises that we call silence. How did I come to be here? The child ventured. I don't remember, said the man, before considering what a queer thing that was to say. Nor do I, said the child. They travelled then for some time in silence, each drawing their own conclusions on where they may have been. Outside the glass, there were still only clouds twisting and turning, that way and this. After some time, a woman came to offer them something to drink. Excuse me, miss, said the man. Where are we going? He thought the question might make him sound quite mad. But the woman smiled. To the island. To an island, but why? To the island, sir. She still wore that smile, like chains around a bear. The man began to think of every island he knew. The small ones that were filled with chattering monkeys, those were of no interest to him, though he rather thought his wife had wanted to visit Madagascar. He had a wife, a strange remembrance. It felt as though it belonged in someone else's luggage. He shook his head to clear it. Do you know of any islands? He asked the child. The child thought for some time. He stared at the clouds while he did. England, he said. Perhaps they were coming from there, the man thought. After all, he didn't remember being anywhere else. Any others? The child thought again. More clouds were watched. They look like whipped cream. Someone should add strawberries. The man sees the child by their shoulders. How can you be thinking of such things? What are you doing? Amusing myself, said the child. They twisted to be free. They found again the silence of their trip. Both were afraid now, but of different things. The taps and whirs of the silence seemed to close in. I cannot do this any more, said the man, standing up. The child turned to watch him. I cannot sit here and wait for some mysterious island. Why ever not? asked the child. He was stunned and sat once again. He turned to see the child their fingers turning smudges on the glass into pictures. I'm sorry, he said. The child stopped. Me too. I'm scared. Me too. The man put his arm around the child. The child cried into a sleeve. Both watched the endless clouds and waited for the island to come to them. That was very good. I liked that a lot. Um, the, the the that imagery of this uh, this plane to the afterlife is is it, well, at least that's my interpretation of it. Um, I felt very connected to in a way. Yeah. Um, using a child as a as a character is quite interesting as well. I haven't really seen or read much Hemingway where he has children's characters yes so that was interesting because i know um i know we've read you've read uh, hills like white elephants yes which is a very famous short story by hemingway and the the female character in that is quite infantilized isn't she she is um, she is she reads almost like a child yeah well I think, I think yeah i think she is supposed to be like a much younger woman that he's knocked up yeah um in that story 
So it was interesting to see that see that kind of character behave like a Hemingway character. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the dialogue was clipped in, in, in exactly the way that he does it, I, I felt. And I, I really liked the way that you iceberged the the fact that they were afraid of different things. Because that was down to us as the reader to know what you meant. Yes. It would, it would have been very reasonable of you to put another line in there. Yeah, uh, that was... Yeah, but you didn't do that it. That was a big part of this was... Yes. Uh, you, you very kindly had sent me an article about the iceberg theory. Yeah. And it is... It's so difficult to put into your writing. Yeah. Cause it, because... You want to pull the trigger, don't you? But yeah, you, you, yeah. You want to be like, but bam! And it, it, I'm, I'm actually really glad that you got the, like, this is the trip to the afterlife thing. Because I was I'm trying to have it be, you know, maybe they're they're just flying somewhere quite far away and this guy got drunk and he's woken up and someone's kid sat next to him or maybe they have died or, you know, there there are a few different reads on it. But it's, I think that's where where it was and maybe it is slightly too lent towards the afterlife. Maybe it's, maybe with a few little tweaks well, it could be. Uh, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to hide plot, I think, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, I get you. So I so I think I think you I think that you've done it correctly like that's that's the right amount to have done because you you icebergged people's emotions and their past lives and the way that they interact and the the resulting emotions from those interactions very neatly yeah inside this uh story device which is this plane flying to the afterlife this this island and he most of his work, as to to the best of my knowledge, is extremely grounded. You know, it's about fishermen and soldiers, and <laughs> and, and uh, you know, ex-soldiers who like bullfight. You know, things like that. Um, so to play with it, to play with a bit of surrealism or like um, a bit of fantasy, not as in like you know, swords and shields fantasy, but literal like fantasy. Yeah. Of, the fantastical. Uh, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, was was really nicely done. I feel like you added something of your of your own creativeness to that, whilst keeping keeping to a right like of of Hemingway. Like you know that did you know the way that their conversations bounced back and forth felt very good. I liked that a lot. I thought it was I thought it was good, short and sweet as well. How long was that? Uh, that was seven hundred words. Crikey! Okay, so a hundred under. It was I. It was longer. And I, I had to take things out because I was over explaining like exactly the this iceberg principle that we've been talking about. Mm. But, you know, I was saying, oh, and the, he looked at the, the clouds and they did this and there was this. But that's not that isn't how it should look. It's not how it should read. So just to be clear, this this iceberg theory for everyone listening, I'm sure everyone probably has an idea of what it is from the way we've described it. But it's essentially that there's he believed that in this theory of omission, uh, and he wrote very confidently knowing what was happening for him, but leaving out details in such a way that he would almost talk around something yeah. and, the, and the reader would have to figure out what that thing was. And it was, it should always be fairly obvious what that thing is, I think, um, but not in a sort of uh, blunt, obvious kind of way, but in like a, oh, that would make sense. Oh, of course it's, that's happening. Excellent yeah. way to to make you engage with it as well. Yeah, I mean, you can't very... ever you can't ever stop focusing. You can't no. skim read because yeah. you have to think. Well, hang on, what's what's that in reference to? Yeah, why do, why would they say that? That oh God, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, as as an idea, in terms of writing, definitely hard to use the first time. But something I think I might, I well, I almost certainly will revisit just not to write whole pieces in but knowing that you can use a sentence or mm. a statement from a character to reveal the tip of something yeah and let the reader figure it out that's i mean frankly genius it's yeah it's very it's elegant and simple um, yeah and i think it's quite easy to misuse like I mean, I'm, I'm about to read my story out as well and um there are a few times where i'm like am i am i overusing this is this not happening um because things still have to happen Yes. You know what I mean? Like, you can't just... Um, the, there needs to be something happening. Hills Like White Elephants is also very short. And 
it's about one thing that they're talking around one thing and in that case yeah. it's a, it's a a proposed idea for an uh, an abortion procedure and that that's fine but if as soon as you start to get a bit longer if nothing's happening if it's just one conversation i i feel like you're doing a disservice to your readers if there isn't actually some plot some action happening yeah so but it's about finding a balance for sure but i, I like the idea that you were saying you're going to take this forwards and occasionally a character will say something to allow a reader to experience the other eighty percent that's below the waterline for themselves. Yeah, um, it's a, yeah, it, that's that's really cool. I like that. I, yeah, I, I I feel strongly like that was a that was a very good entry. Um, I think you know it's always a good story when you're still thinking about it quite a lot afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed the description of um, she wore her smile like uh, chains around a bear. Yeah, that's that's got. That's that's like an onion, that isn't it? It's. I had to, I had to have at least one of my little things in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my strange comparisons, but I. It seemed really fitting in that moment. Because you know that that hostess. Uh, look, and it, this may be because I've been uh, well, we've both recently been watching the boys and that kind of wearing a smile mm-hmm. and covering up so much power with it. It's true. That, uh, yeah, the idea of being being capable of of being vicious and being strong, but it, all of that just being hidden behind the that fake smile, especially in so bizarre a situation as this story takes place in. Yeah, but this is a perfect example because that's yeah. your intention. But what I took from it was that she was a she, it was a performance, ah, like, like a performing bear. Um, so. But that, that that's what you're going for with this. Like it's you know, pe- people are allowed to color it in to mean roughly what they want it to mean, um, what while still you know serving the plot that you're trying to tell so that the story's cohesive and makes sense, which did happen because I did get what the story was about, despite it never being explicitly said. Oh, English teacher out of ten, absolutely mm. smashed it for sure. <laughs> right, go on. No more putting it off. Yeah, no, it's um. Let's, let's have you. I'm, I'm excited for yours. Yeah, me too. I'm I'm looking forward to reading it out. So uh, I'll uh, I'll take a swing. Islands. The three of them were sat looking out of the skiff and away from each other. The whine of the outboard motor which drove them across the gap between the islands gave Diego a break from the lack of conversation. The minor come down from the night before had left the space between his ears sore and so he let his hand trail in the light blue of the churned-up water. "'I don't suppose there's any beer in that cooler, is there?' shouted Andreas over the noise. "'150 baht,' replied the pilot from the back of the boat. "'That's steep!' "'You'd still pay more back home,' Diego interjected, but Andreas kept his eyes on the pilot, who shrugged. "'Fine!' Andreas flipped open the cooler and pulled out a bottle, then opened it using the bar blade that hung from the cooler's handle on a short string. He put the money in the small jar left in the cooler for that purpose. As Andreas was about to go back to staring out at the islands, Diego leant in and pulled out another bottle. Would you like one too? He shouted towards Miriam, who sat in the prow with her back to everyone. Why not? We're all on holiday after all, aren't we? Her sharp tone cut through the noise. Diego passed the bottle to her and plucked a second one for himself. I'll get hers, Andreas said and placed 150 in the jar. Diego fished for his own wallet, then paid for his before shutting the lid of the cooler. Andreas looked at the lines on Miriam's back, where her strapped tops had left the skin pale despite the continual sun. He remembered how absurd the smiley-faced pasty she'd been wearing the previous night had looked when she was angry. She wasn't angry now, just quiet. It was like watching a storm from the sea roll in. Andreas wondered if she'd be this way with him indefinitely, if that taste of something different would linger between them every time they kissed. It was likely over, he decided. Why wouldn't it be? If the trust goes, so does the love. Miriam watched the point where the water continually parted to let the teal bow of the skiff pass. There had been dozens of boats there last night, all moored in the cove and hung with lanterns. Most were taxi boats, but others held tall lamps that flooded the shore's edge with light. Thousands of half-naked people had claimed the shore. 
spilling up the beach towards the lights of the bars, a glittering panoply of shining flesh, beads and UV paint. Many of them had been slurping from buckets of strong liquor, whilst others had found different ways to alter their consciousness. Miriam had felt something was wrong when they had left her to boisterously clamber the rocks which turned the edge of the cove. Their booze-fuelled chest-thumping had been wearing her down as the party had gone on, and she decided to watch some fire jugglers instead of joining them. She'd eventually followed them, though, worrying they'd slip and crack their skulls. It had been worse, she thought, that she'd found them very much alive. The teal skiff pulled into the small jetty by their hut, barely bumping the small tyres strung along it to cushion impacts. Miriam was the first out, her sandaled feet slapping at the jetty's slats as she marched away from them. Andreas hopped out after her and tried not to be seen to run in order to catch her up. Diego paid the pilot and got out as well, unwilling to follow them into another silent conversation. The pilot tore away from the jetty, gunning his pitiful engine back the way they'd come in search for more butt. The small beach by their rented two-storey hut looked smooth, the chairs they'd left out still pointed between the islands at the deepest part of the ocean they could see. Diego took his rapidly warming beer and sat himself in one of them. The tiredness washed over him, and he focused on the way the sun glanced in scalding slivers from the truest blue water. He'd spent years hopping from one luscious country to another, and he was starting to feel like all that beauty had aged him. Voices raised up behind him from the beach hut like a sudden squall. Diego tucked his chin in and hunkered down in the chair when he heard a glass chatter and a door being slammed. The horrible silence returned after that. The beer was all but gone. There was plenty more in the fridge, but he'd be fucked if he was going in there. Instead, he let the bottle drop onto the sand by the chair and tried to put everything into perspective. As a four-letter man, he'd often had to do that back home. Geological, that was the way to do it. The string of islands themselves were cast, slowly dissolving limestone hulks. If they would be gone one day, what would it ever matter what had happened on one of their beaches? People couldn't think like that all the time, though or they'd never motivate themselves to get anything done. Diego felt a sharp prod on his dangling hand and jumped up. A black scorpion shuttled back and forth in his shadow, stinger tail curled above itself, looking to strike again. The wound had already puffed up, and Diego kicked the beach chair over the creature. Cradling the injured hand, Diego walked up the beach, hurrying towards the hut whilst trying to keep his mind from capsizing into unseemly panic. It just needed a wash, he thought, a compress from the freezer, and maybe something from his hangover kit. All was quiet when he slipped inside, and Diego moved quickly into the kitchen. Miriam was sat on the floor by Andreas. Broken bits of a bottle stuck out of his scalp. Did he hit something on the way down? She said nothing. The edge of the counter? She said nothing. Couldn't you have just left him? Miriam said nothing. Good grief. Mm. I really, really was taken on a journey by that. Yeah? Yeah, so I, I know this is because of the iceberg theory thing, but my, my brain kept taking those gaps and filling them in, and at first it felt like a forbidden gay romance. And then it had this weird, almost like famous five edge to it. Oh, really? Yeah, so like in the in the middle, it's talking about you know they were they were clambering over the rocks, and she thought she'd best go and check on them. I, it got this kind of like grown up famous five out on an adventure thing, and it meant that when it when it dropped and it became dark, that that was so weighty. Ah, oh, it's fascinating that it did a, a great job of making me go, oh no. And yeah, honestly, fantastic ending with her yeah. not responding. And him just just pushing a little bit more with each question and and no resolution, really really nicely done. Thank you. Um, I I had a lot of fun writing it. I uh, I think there's there are some bits that you can see where I've where I've read recently read Hills Like White Elephants, but also um, there is a, a fairly famous short story by him called it's like the it's called the the short happy life of Francis Macomber. Okay. About a, uh, a a man who goes on like a safari with his wife, and basically exhibits some cowardice when he has to when he shoots a lion. Yeah. 
and it's all about the way that their relationship breaks down because of this display of cowardice and uh and you sort of learn more and more about the things that have gone wrong for them in the past and and ultimately there is a there is a death as well which heavily inspired the way that this story turned out there's a um absolutely fantastic line in there when he sat out on the beach he thinks you know these these islands will be gone one day so what what does it matter what happens here mm. and then followed shortly after by but you couldn't think like that all the time or it's not people couldn't think like that all the time and it was yeah yeah almost humbling just a yeah. really nice moment and you know it begins that the kind of you've heard not long before that you know something smashed inside but you don't really know you know was something thrown in an argument was etc yeah, I mean, it obviously becomes clear at the end that she's she's hit him with hit a bottle, and, yeah. and then and then he's hit something on the way down, which is what what he's mistaken for a door slam, isn't it? Um, the the thing that you may not have got from that paragraph, where you know about the geological perspective of the dissolving limestone hulks and stuff, yeah, is that uh, during the opening of that paragraph, he says, as a four letter man. He often had to do that back home, as in put things into perspective in order to deal with them. Yeah, um, and that is a uh, an insult taken directly from Hemingway as well, uh, because a four letter man, the implication is uh, H O M O, so calling someone a homo. Oh, so my my queer read at the beginning was quite good then. Your, your queer read was entirely accurate. I mean, that's so, kudos. It, both to you and to, I guess, my gaydar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, as I was saying earlier, Hemingway believed that the writer had to know exactly what was going on and then write around it and let people fill in. So it can mean whatever whatever people want it to mean. But for me, this story is about during a a Thailand full moon party, a, a dude cheats on his girlfriend with a friend and she catches them and it gets out, and then the the fallout gets out of hand. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, this has brought some interesting stuff out of us, man. I, maybe it's like, I mean, you'd said to me it was, you you really like Hemingway, you have a lot of respect for him, so it meant you had to bring your A game. But I think you really did. Oh, that's very kind. I think. Um, I, I'm I'm pretty pleased with the story, but I think one of the th- one of the things that's left left me sort of like a feeling a bit like a drooling imbecile is that it, this man made it look easy to write like this, and it's really oh God. Not. This was so hard. <laughs> it's so hard, um, and to, to even to even attempt it and make something that looks like a bit of a facsimile, even a pale facsimile, is still very hard. I, I, yeah, so, hours and hours for seven hundred words. Hours yeah. and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, and. Yeah, I, I deleted way more than I kept. Yeah, because I was just looking at it and going, "This, this is nothing. This isn't any. It doesn't provide anything. It doesn't fit the style. It just and I, that happens so rarely that I didn't really, I didn't really know what to do. It feels it, like it's the next level up, doesn't it? Because yeah, it's so hard. Because cause if you've got your, you know, your ability to plot a short story down to characterise people, to describe things, to have a rhythm. You know, all these things that you need to have in order to have a successful short story. Then, on top of it, you then you, you then start omitting things. <laughs> yeah, like now do that, but not that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, and you just got to imply everything. So, although you've written 700 words, you've implied 7,000. It's... The the hardest bit, honestly, was ending it. It's why I was so impressed yeah, by your fact. ending, because it's it really does... It, without being, and that was the end, and everyone went home. You do end that arc within the greater story. Yeah. And, you know, when I was writing, I was like, I, I don't know when this stops, and I, I barely know when this started, because it's like, if you're, you know, we, you spent the rest of your time being a baker and making cakes, and then one day someone comes in and they're like, I'd like you to bake me one slice of cake, please, but I want it to taste like a whole cake. Yeah, yeah. What? I d- that doesn't make any sense. Do that's it. A, Do a, it, coward. That's, really, that's a really fun but very accurate analogy. I like that a lot. Terrifying. And I think 
the other thing that I would I would mention is that I I always my from the very first time that I read any Hemingway to to still the present day, the thing that I love about it is that feeling like you've just been punched. Yeah. Like, like when when something when you realize something when the other shoe drops, it is it is like thump to the belly. Oh no. Then there's another one. You know, in the novels, yeah. it just keeps going. But in the short stories, it's normally just one big thump or maybe a couple, depending on how long the short story is. I uh, think, honestly, if anyone... I know some some people do write along and you do have a go with us. I really feel like Hemingway and the his iceberg style of writing is just a good exercise to practice. If anything, the the exercise there, I totally agree. The exercise is just to write dialogue, so to imply action through dialogue, and not just action, but also like emotional consequence and other things like that. If you can, because Hills Like White Elephants is predominantly dialogue, yes, untagged speech dialogue. So that's that's the real test, I think. If you can write, you know, a, a story that's predominantly dialogue which i haven't really done here um i think it's it's not quite half and half dialogue there's a, there's still a lot of prose description and stuff happening and you want some of that but yeah yeah um but if people yeah if people are going on really focus on that bit because i feel like that's the the in on getting the iceberg theory down uh not saying we've got it down entirely but like i felt like I felt stronger when it was people talking than I did when it was description. Yes, I yeah. I think I think the the writerly instinct can be turned off slightly more when you're writing dialogue because you know you're writing in a voice, mm-hmm. but when you're writing description, you're writing in your voice. You the yeah. writer, you the narrator. That was the other thing that I was thinking about in terms of having because obviously we're an audio podcast, so it's yeah. You've got to read it out, which means that. There is there is a point at which, because because you're implying everything with trying to write like Hemingway with this iceberg stuff happening, yeah. Actually, you kind of want readers' eyes on it directly, so that yeah. so that you can't put any any source on it at all. You can't spin speech that way or this way. Yeah, they've got to just read it. And in a way, I know it's a, it's a bit counterintuitive because we're still performing. We've performed two stories for you. In a way, I feel like Hemingway style doesn't do well when read out. It needs to be read, perhaps, to get like the full impact. Because you need to be in your own mind really heavily to fully get it. I, I 100% agree. 100%. It's, uh, yeah, it's one of the few that, you know, when I write for the podcast, I don't do a lot of formatting, really. I just get it all down and into a position where I can read it. But this one, I had to format it. To, to make it make sense before I could go back to it. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think it's all it's all part of that. It's more than just the words. And it's it's unbelievably complicated. There's so much potential depth to it that it's Well, it, like you know, I said at the beginning, yeah. I've I've read almost no Hemingway, but I I'm going to find out for whom the bell tolls. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, possibly. Yeah, maybe maybe you should go straight to that one. Um if only because I think it's my favourite, and you you've already got a grasp on how it works, so why not? Well, you're my favourite, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think I've got a new. We might have a name for this section after the. <laughs> oh, well, the, uh... the the Dickens episode. I'm going to call this section the verging on apocryphal. Because <laughs> <laughs> I found a list of interesting facts about Ernest Hemingway. Go on, hit me. I'd tell you what, so his mother, Grace, was the domineering type. That's not the fact, but an interesting way to open one. <laughs> uh, she wanted a daughter, not a son. Uh, to placate herself after Ernest was born, she would dress him up in pink flowery dresses and call him Ernestine. <laughs> How would anyone know that? That sounds like he he fancifully... Unless she told him, like, oh God, that's fucked up. Uh, not sure about that. It was still, I mean, he he was, he must have been born in the late 19th century? Yeah. When was he born? Was it, was it like, 
1890 something. Let me find out. Yeah, 1899. There you go. So, um, so I mean, it did. It was the case that people used to put like, you know, smocks on little boys and little girls, irregardless of their their sex. So I don't think that bit's too far fetched. But the idea of it being a deliberately like feminized smock, and also to change his name, like refer to him as the wrong name. Yeah. Is that feels just like fairly deviant, doesn't it? That's that's pretty un- unpleasant. Especially compared to all the other facts about how fucking manly this dude was. He started hunting early. At the age of three, he killed a porcupine at his father's behest. He finished the job by eating it. <laughs> he finished the job by eating it implies that this thing was like in the death throes yeah. and yeah, he yeah, tucked yeah. in. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which, which I don't think is right. Like, he would have... Because I think he was into, like, bushcraft and stuff, so I think um, that must have... He must... I think they've just phrased that incorrectly. I think he probably killed it with something, and then they ate it. But, um, but, but, ben, three, but three is a bit young for that, I think. Well, that's nothing when you compare it to the fact that just after finishing For Whom the Bell Tolls, he went out with his third wife and two kids and killed 400 jackrabbits in one day. <laughs> 400? 400? What was he using? A fucking machine gun? <laughs> a small thermonuclear device. Yeah, just like tucked a bloody dynamite <laughs> into a warren. Like, these claims are fantastic. <laughs> 400. That's nonsense, man. Like, you'd need an attack helicopter. <laughs> oh, you're not wrong. But then also, because I have heard that he was um, he was quite a boastful man. You know, it was yeah. it, you know he he was he was very concerned with his own image. But then I think also they've they he did have a bit of a wildlife. You know, he he travelled to war zones a lot. I think the FBI were investigating him at one point uh, because he was he was kind of obsessed with Cuba. Um, and then there's this there's this story from World War Two that I remember where he. He was there to like observe as a journalist, but he set up a like a paramilitary group with a bunch of locals, right? And like did some fighting, like he led them, like a commander. And he got into like some fairly serious like hot water because you know civilians are not allowed to do that. Uh, but I think he was like brought up on formal charges and stuff. Like he was properly reprimanded for it. But there's yeah. a there's a quote about it that goes. Uh, Hemingway got into considerable trouble playing infantry captain to a group of resistance people that he gathered because a correspondent is not supposed to lead troops, even if he does it well. (laughs) (laughs) Such such a sneaky flex in that statement. But that's not him. That's somebody else talking about him. I know, but regardless, even if he does it well. Yeah. I found a fun thing, which is that uh, he ended up being quite good friends with Orson Welles. Right? Oh, really? So apparently there was a uh, a documentary called The Spanish Earth uh, for which Hemingway had written some text. And a very young Orson Welles was recording voiceover for it because he had a great voice. Mm. But apparently in quite a snide and sarcastic way. And they came to blows. <laughs> Right, so Orson Welles and Ernest Hemingway had a punch up, <laughs> and then at the end decided it had been good sport and just became mates. I fucking love that. Which that's, is that's everything I want from life. <laughs> it's the, you know that, I, and I feel like that kind of like boisterous, larger than life character that was, you know, in for a good show. Yeah, is exactly who he was trying to be, and yeah. I, I think. It, it it's very well known that he had fairly serious like um like especially in later life like depression and um he was he was treated multiple times for you know for not not being well and mentally mm. um and obviously he ultimately shot himself in the head with a shotgun so yeah it, you know that's you know that's got an edge to it hasn't it um but i think there was a person that he was trying to be and that person was like a Happy, boisterous, extremely talented, respected, almost as I said at the start of this, mythological state. Like a, a Teddy Roosevelt character. 
Yeah, like that rough riding kind of yeah. uh, look and feel was certainly a big thing for him. Uh, and I would say that he was successful like that. I think that is, aside from his like, obviously fantastic writing novels and short stories, that is his legacy to a certain degree, is yeah. this image of Ernest Hemingway as this, you know, relatively hard drinking wild man who was a good sport. Yeah. And was incredibly talented and and lived through blah, 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 blah. You know, like it just, the list goes on and on. And uh, I mean, it's, I remember the, when I first got into Hemingway and then I found out what, how he killed himself. And I was actually really disappointed. And I, I don't know whether this is an okay reaction or a, to express, but like, yeah. I, I felt very disappointed that someone that I looked up to that much had essentially shot themselves in essentially in front of their family. Yeah. Um, I don't think they were actually in the room, but like, I can only imagine shooting yourself with a shotgun is messy as fuck. It's not quiet or clean. No. Yeah, you're you're not you know that he's not taking like a like a graceful way out because he's got a long illness or anything like that. You know he has, you know, fairly serious mental issues and he shoots himself extremely messily and loudly. Um, anyway, I think his wife had to be sedated. You know, she was wow, it just bonkers, and I and I felt disappointed in the man because I because I. You know, I, I'm this. I'm talking like 16 when I first, maybe even 15 when I first read a bit of Hemingway. So I was already being like looking up to this like manly man figure, who yeah. was, you know, essentially one of the masters of something that I was even then very interested in, i.e., writing. Yeah. And uh, to find out that he died like that, I actually didn't read any Hemingway for several years after that because I was so disappointed in him as a person. Um, it's, uh... Yeah. Oh, um, his father took his own life. Two of his siblings took their own life, mm. and his granddaughter did as well. So there's something in terms of mental health that they. Yeah, felt very strongly at the time that it was extremely selfish. Yes. So, but I'm also aware that perhaps that isn't uh, an okay view to hold or whatever. Uh, and I don't think it's, I'm not applying that generally as a, you know, like a broad brush, like, but um, yeah, it definitely impacted my appreciation for Hemingway for a while um, until I got it back into it by reading The Old Man in the Seat, which is the one that he actually, as I said earlier, theoretically won the Nobel Prize for. Yeah. And, th and then followed up with filling the bell tolls, which I thought was superior. Yeah, what a wild ride. What a, uh, like, you know, uh, you know, a great man. I'm sure he did, as we say, as a caveat for virtually every old white man that we've done these right likes on, I'm sure he was an absolute bastard to somebody at some point. Gotcha. I'm, I'm sure there was, there's something that we haven't covered that was extremely problematic in his behavior or outlook. I mean, but, that, um, that person, Ben, was Sharks, who apparently he would fire his <laughs> machine gun at when he was fishing, just make them stay away from his catch. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. Well, fuck Sharks. You've heard it here first. <laughs> Dolphins, too. All of them. Fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> what? Proper fuck them? Well, really the deep. <laughs> <laughs> Guy Ritchie, apparently. Oh well, that was a weird. That was a weird comment. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, we have a good time doing these, don't we? I think so. I think so. I, oh, oh, also, did you know that apparently? I think he took. Um, I think his dick didn't work for a while as well because he got he got wounded in World War One, which is where a lot of his. Um, uh, some some of his like interpersonal drama comes from in his in his books. Right. Um, it's unfortunate, but uh, when you say didn't work, to what extent? Like couldn't get hard, or he couldn't piss, or 
I, I, I assume it was. I think it was a sexual problem. Yeah. So. Right. I was gonna <laughs> just just didn't work. It'd go for a wee. It would sprout out his finger. It was. crikey. I think he got hit like by a mortar or something. Like it was really like bad. I need like the the shell hit him in the dick, or it, <laughs> one exploded near him and caused some penile problems. I, I think it was I think it was shrapnel from a nearby. Because <laughs> that is an impact, isn't it? <laughs> what to be hit by a mortar round? Yeah, yeah. Let's just say he wouldn't have written any fucking books after that. <laughs> Don't worry, guys. It was a dud. <laughs> it was a dud. It bounced off his massive penis. <laughs> ah, I see. This this story was also written by Hemingway. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tiny Bookcase. Remember to subscribe, otherwise you're going to miss out on the future fun. Also, tell a friend. If you like this episode, link them to it. We'd be tremendously grateful. You can follow us on Twitter at Bookcase Tiny, Facebook at the Tiny Bookcase, and Instagram. Bookcase Tiny for updates. Speaking of supporting the podcast, well, magic can only take one so far. The Tiny Bookcase is supported by the generosity of its patrons. Those kind souls have really kept my belly full the last year. Let's cast a spell for them, shall we? For uh, Magnificent Beardery, let's cast the Chinicus Folliculale spell on Gary Laird. For Rich Ginger Tones on the scalp, let us cast the Orangi Hedondo spell for Scott Byrne. And for General Fabulousness, why not the Ooh-la-la Alge Mother spell on Matthew McLaren? How do you come up with that shit, man?